Well, good morning. It is great to be here. Continue our summer in the Psalms. I just got to spend a week at Hume Lake where if you can't uh, see God's power and uh, majesty in nature, uh, I don't know how to relate because those mountains and those trees and the sun, oh my gosh, it was an amazing week to experience God's presence. And I hope that we can experience God's presence here today together. First, before I get into anything, I wanted to make a couple of acknowledgments today. If you're wondering who this uh, handsome person playing guitar and singing uh, this morning is, that's our, our new worship pastor, Ty Hall. And uh, he, l- let me just say this. Yeah, yeah, we love Ty. Um, this guy moved here less than three weeks ago and then went straight to Hume Lake to hang out with our students and sleep in a stinky cabin full of boys. And, uh, and then he's back here today leading us in worship. And so I'm just so grateful to have him here and uh, for his heart to jump right into uh, be a part of this church. Uh, also, Steve and Kathy Craig are here. I just saw them and we're so grateful they're here. Uh, some of our favorite people in the world, uh, amazing missionaries over in Turkey right now. If you uh, would love to say hi to them and pray with them today. I just volunteered them for that. They would love to say hi to you, <laughs> I assume. Uh, <laughs> um, but hey, I want to I just open up with a, a, a word of prayer of some things that have just been kind of heavy on my heart and haven't had a chance to really um, do any pastoring through that with us as a congregation over these last few weeks with all that's going on. So if, we, if you would, just join me in prayer. God, we um, come today and we uh, will engage with this psalm, Psalm 51, this psalm of, of lament, personal lament, repentance. And Lord, we, we just corporately come and we lament uh, as well this, this whole COVID-19 thing that is still going on and it's affecting people we love. And uh, Lord, we just, we just confess it's too much for us. Two and a half years into this, it, we just don't have the answers uh, we don't see the end in sight. And God, we, I, we just we come before you and just proclaim our weakness and, and declare our need for you, God. You know, protect us. Watch over us, we pray. Uh, Lord, uh, it, another mass shooting, um, and there seems to be one every day, but uh, this, this thing that happened in Chicago and things like it happening all over, we, we pray again, Lord, how long. We, we just see so much needless suffering, uh, so much violence, so much anger. God, we just need your rescue. We need your help. Uh, Lord, please have mercy. We pray for all those who are mourning the loss, the senseless loss of, of, of people that they loved. Draw near to us. God, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since uh, this, this kind of landmark Supreme Court court decision of Roe v. Wade being overturned, and in our nation, we have people who are celebrating this, and we have people who are lamenting this, and uh, Lord, this is, it's, it's another one of those things where we have people who are for something or against something, and we wave our banner, and we argue, and we yell, and God, I, as a pro-life church, God, we, we just want to ask that you would shape us to be pro-life in a way that eases suffering. When I read Matthew 25, and I think of how Jesus is going to judge us. Lord, I don't see him saying, hey, you had the right opinions about the right things and you voted for the right people who shared your opinions. You, you judge us based on, did we ease suffering? Did we tangibly make a difference? And so, Lord, as we care for, for life from conception to the, to the tomb, from womb to tomb, God, would we be people who tangibly make a difference, who love single moms who don't know what else to do, who care 
for widows and orphans in their distress, as your word calls us for. Lord, let us not be shouting and all noisy like the rest of the world is, but let us humbly serve and truly be people of life, who value life and want to see it thrive at every stage. And Lord, we just pray all of these things this morning as we start, because every day it feels like we're in unprecedented times, and uh, we'd like to be in precedented times at some point. <laughs> we, we need to slow down the news cycle. We need, uh, we're overwhelmed. And so we just come to you, God, and we just say, please, Lord, we are too small to handle any of these things. But, but Lord, you are not. So we put our trust in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I want to get into Psalm 51 in a minute, and this is an important psalm to my life. It's the very first passage of scripture that I memorized, and I was required to memorize it to go on a missions trip uh, shortly after I graduated high school. And uh, that wasn't too long after I put my faith in Christ um, for, for the first time, and so I didn't really understand the Bible or know how to pray it. But I remember being overwhelmed by guilt, but not having the words to say, not having language to express what I was experiencing as I was trying to connect with God. And Psalm 51 was huge for me because it gave words to, to what I was experiencing. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing that with you today. But it's a psalm of repentance. And when I think about the word repentance, I, I didn't understand the word repentance early in my faith. I thought it was simply apologizing. Um, uh, anybody grow up with siblings here? Anybody? Okay, I have a brother who's 18 months older than me, and uh, we didn't always get along. He's bigger than me, physically, you know, pushed me around whenever he wanted to. I was uh, the, the sharp-tongued little punk kid who said the mean things, and, and that was how I would get him back. One time, we were probably four and five, um, he was kind of beating me up, and I probably deserved it for something I did or said, but he was kind of roughing me up, pushing me around, right, and I reached for the first thing I could find, and it was one of those toy rubber snakes, right, and I Indiana Jonesed him, I was like, whoosh, you know, and it got him right in the eyeball, and uh, so needless to say, a five-year-old who just got snake whipped uh, in the eyeball was screaming, crying, right? And so my dad comes running in, and what happened? And it's never the person who started the violence. It's always the one who, who, who <laughs> responds, right? You ever see a football game? It's the guy who pushes second that gets the flag thrown on him. Well, I got the flag thrown on me, right? Um, I was the, the culprit. I was the perpetrator. And uh, so my punishment was, you know, I got spanked with a snake because that seemed fitting, right? Uh, so if you're young in here and you've never been spanked, you're probably like, whoa, that's evil. Like, yeah, I mean... I probably deserved it. Uh, <laughs> so the, the, this all happened, and then what, what happens? My dad brings us together and say you're sorry. I'm, s I'm sorry. Tell him it's okay. Tell him you accept his apology. I accept your apology. And then we went our separate ways, furious at each other, waiting to plot our revenge against one another for the thing that had just happened. These kind of forced apologies that we experience when we're kids um, aren't repentance. I wasn't really sorry. I was just trying to get out of the situation. If that's what it takes for me to end this, I'll say I'm sorry. And so that's what happened. But, but repentance is different. It's not forced. It's not coerced. It's not something you do in order to get out of a situation. Repentance is about transformation and restoration. And that's what Psalm 51 is all about. It's a personal lament. It's a psalm of repentance. And again, I, I've come back to this psalm over and over again in my life as I've needed to repent to get right with God. 
It's important as we read this psalm that we understand the context. A lot of the psalms that are written, and even some of the psalms of David that are written, we don't know exactly what was going on. But this one we do. If you've got a Bible, you'll see the heading there. It talks about what was going on in David's life. And I want to give you the context of what was going on in David's life as he, um, as he confesses before the Lord. There's a story in the scriptures where uh, David is, is out on a rooftop and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing. And uh, David um, forgets the fact that he's married or conveniently forgets the fact that he's married. He forgets the fact that he's called by God to live a godly life and do things the right way. And he, 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 he goes to see Bathsheba. He has her brought to him. And he sleeps with her, the Bible says. Then, finding out that this uh, woman is married and now pregnant with David's child because it couldn't be the husband's. He's off at battle serving in David's army. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, um, he, David tries to get Uriah to go home to sleep with his wife and then he could say, well, that's Uriah's kid, not my kid. I mean, this is some shady stuff that David is up to. When Uriah... He, he's such an honorable man and soldier that he says, I refuse. I'm going to sleep at your doorstep, King David, until you send me back to my men because they're out there fighting and dying and I should be there with them. And so David's like, well, dang, what do I do now? Everybody's going to find out. Everybody's going to find out what a bad guy I am. And, he's, and uh, this guy's got a legitimate complaint against me once he finds out that I'm the father of his wife's son. And so what does David do? He sends Uriah to the most dangerous part of the battle uh, and, and basically arranges it so that Uriah would be killed in battle. And all this is going on because David forgets. He forgets who he is. He forgets the commitments that he has made to his, his wife, his family, to, to the people he was called to lead and to the God who called him to lead it. David's best friend comes to him. Uh, he's known as the prophet Nathan. And in 2 uh, Samuel, we, we see this story where, where Nathan comes and he tells the story to David. He says, hey, there was this wealthy man uh, and, and he, he's interacting with this poor man. And instead of the wealthy man uh, slaughtering his own spotless, perfect lamb for the celebration, he takes the one lamb that this poor person has. This, this, this lamb that was so special to this poor person and slaughters that lamb. And David is like, well, that's messed up. That guy's wrong. He should actually be put to death. And then Nathan says, the person is you. You took from Uriah what was not yours. And, and let's, let's be real clear about what happened here. David did not commit adultery. That heading that's listed at the top of your Bible, that's added later. That's not in the original scriptures. David didn't commit adultery. He forced, he coerced Bathsheba into sleeping with him. And we don't talk about that a lot, but here's the king of Israel. This isn't the first wife he's taken from one of his enemies. And what is Bathsheba going to do? Say no. So, so you've taken this thing, and, and it's, it's the imagery is you've taken this innocent lamb that wasn't yours. From somebody else. That's how Bathsheba is described in, in Nathan's analogy. This innocent lamb. You took her against her will. And then you had Uriah killed. This sets off a whole chain reaction. David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And the child that they conceived together dies. 
They have multiple more kids together. Um, eventually, Solomon is born through Bathsheba, and he's going to take over the throne from David at some point. And then it, it, David has multiple wives, a bunch of wives. And, and this causes all sorts of turmoil in his family. He's got one son through one wife who just says, well, why would I have any sort of sexual ethics? Look at my dad. And does all sorts of messed up stuff. And he's got another son that sees that happen and says, that's evil. Why isn't my father, the king, doing anything about that? And so he kills the other brother. And then just chain reaction after chain reaction, David's household is in turmoil. This, this son eventually turns on him and wants to seek the throne. David's on the run. All of this eventually is going to lead to a split kingdom, a civil war that's happening between people in the north of Israel and people in the south part of Judah. And they become two different nations and they fight and they fight and fight. And because David forgot who he was and his commitment to the Lord, his commitment to his family, his commitment to the position that God placed him in, the whole kingdom falls apart. And I know what you're thinking. Isn't King David supposed to be a hero of the Bible? <laughs> Some hero, right? And we got to read these things, these narratives in Scripture. We have to read them as descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. When we read the history of the Bible, this isn't necessarily God stamping his approval on this. No, he is furious with David for what he's doing. This is, it's, it's telling us what's going on, but it doesn't necessarily say that these, these actions have God's stamp of approval. The events we read about doesn't mean God wanted this to happen, but history is messy. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the history as David fits in, but this is the context through which this psalm is written. It's heavy. David, David didn't just like sin against God. This isn't just oops. He has committed some of the most grievous crimes you can. So I want to be careful that we don't overly glorify David when we read this story. We, when we read any story, we want to know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. But David is a mix of both, just like me. Just like most of us. And, and this psalm shows us how God interacts with us as we wrestle with that being a mix of a good guy and a bad guy, a hero and a villain. And, and I want to encourage you as we, as we go through this uh, come back to this psalm over and over again. When you need to repent, pray it as a prayer. This is a prayer that David prayed that could, can be used by all of us when we need to turn around. So let's go to the scripture. Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop is a plant that they used in ceremonial cleansings. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David wants us to imagine a, a white garment, a white robe that is now just covered in blood because of what he's done. And he wants God to make him clean again. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, the burnt offerings, offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. These last few verses remind us of the Old Testament system of sacrificial, uh, sacrificing animals for forgiveness of sins. And so if they seem a little weird, that's a, a kind of ancient practice. But, but I want to talk about three things that repentance does today based on these passages, this, this passage we've just read. Three things uh, that, that, that praying prayers of repentance, of turning our lives around do. And the first one is this, repentance restores relationship. Repentance restores relationship. You read through those first four verses especially. What you have is David absolutely anguishing over his sin. This isn't like, my bad. And it's also not like, hey, I don't want to get in trouble here, God. I need you to let me off the hook because I don't want to suffer the consequences. This is David recognizing that he has broken his commitment to the Lord. One of the reasons that David takes it so hard is because he has spent his life in the presence of God. He knows God so intimately that when he forgets and walks away and does these horrible things, he finds himself not in the presence of the Lord. And he doesn't know what to do. He feels desperate. He's, he's scared. He realizes that he had this relationship with God that was so close-knit and by his own choice, he cut it off. And he said, I'm going to do things my way. And that's pretty relatable. Um, I, I've, I've had those experiences many times. Um, for David, the most crucial part of his repentance, the most difficult part that he needs to work through is that he has broken his relationship with God. Look at verse 8 again, if you, if you would. He says, let the bones you have crushed. Now, remember, the Psalms are poetry. They're songs, right? And so this is, this is uh, poetic language. The bones were, in Hebrew poetry, were a, a kind of a, a metaphor for my entire being. Like, the inside of me, the very deep parts of me have been crushed. Why? He's crushed because he had God, and he pushed God away, and now he's lost. He doesn't have God in his life. He feels destroyed, defeated. He's in agony over sin. He's damaged the relationship. And I bring this up to just say, like, David knows because of his closeness with God just how destructive sin is, just how seriously it should be taken. David's prayer of repentance is ultimately about restoring his relationship with God because he has destroyed it. I love what it says in, in, in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, not because I deserve your mercy, but according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. David does not appeal to his own goodness for God to forgive him. He appeals to God's goodness. 
There's one curious verse in here I want to point out because, again, we, we need to remember this is, everything is context. Everything is understanding the genre that we're reading, and we're reading poetry here. When he says against you, you only have I sinned. The first couple times I read through this passage, I was like, that's not true. Seems like he sinned against Bathsheba, right? Pretty sure the guy he got killed, Uriah, he sinned against him, right? Like, what is he talking about? Against you and you only? So I thought, like, okay, maybe David's still processing through this. He doesn't understand the full weight of what he's done as he's writing this. Or, or, or maybe he's, he's just in denial. Maybe David is just, like, totally in denial. He's not, owning, he's not fully owning his responsibility. But the more I study this, the more I've learned that this is one of those, those hyperbole things that poets do. God is, is the one who David is most committed to. It's the most important relationship in his life. And so when he says against you and you only have I sinned, what he's trying to say is, I have broken the deepest commitment I'm supposed to have. The one I'm supposed to be the most loyal to. Above all else, nobody else comes close, and I have betrayed him. Verses 10 and 11, change me. Give me a pure heart, steadfast. And I love this because repentance is an apology. Repentance isn't just an apology. It's committing to change and to transformation. If you were at Hume Lake, I see at least one of you who was at Hume Lake with me this week. Uh, our speaker did this great thing. He just, he just, this is repentance. I'm going this way. Oh no, this isn't the way I'm supposed to be going. I change my mind and I turn around and go the right way. Repentance is transformation. It's changing the path that we're on. It's changing our mind from the path that leads to destruction. That's what Jesus calls it. And getting on the path that leads to life. And then he says this, do not hide your presence from me, Right? Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. In unrepentant sin, he's saying, I can have my sin or I can have God's presence. And I know I can't have both. And he's saying, I want God's presence. I know that's where life is. I know that's where I'm supposed to be. And so he, he asks God to restore to him his presence. You see, sin is like this. When we run away from God, we've made up our minds that we want to live life our own way. Sin kind of like this. Do you ever have a solicitor come to your door, right? When I was a kid and solicitors came to your door, everybody just answered the door, right? Now when a solicitor comes to the door, what do you do? Everybody, everybody shut up. Don't say a word. Hide. Get down. You're in the window. Is that just me? But when we sin, it's like we've locked ourselves in a house and God's knocking on the door. We pushed him out. We said, I need you out for a little bit. I got some stuff to do and I don't want you to see it type of thing, right? We've walked away. We've hidden from God. And then he's knocking on the door and we're like, close the curtains, hide, get low. <laughs> and when we've, when we've sinned, the first role of the Holy Spirit is to knock on our door. He doesn't bust down the door. He knocks gently and he waits for us to open. He waits for us to eventually realize that something is off, something isn't right. For David, he was so used to God's presence being a constant in his life, he realized how far he pushed God, how far he distanced himself from him, and he's like, I don't like this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I I'm alive, 
but I'm not living. I'm not truly alive like I'm supposed to be because God's not in here with me. And before we can have closeness with God again, we need to answer the door. The Holy Spirit knocks gently and waits. And this door that we open, it's our being convicted of sin. It's us realizing that we've walked away from God and we need him. And so we invite the Spirit back. And we invite the Spirit back through difficult conversations like the one that David is having here in Psalm 51. And the Spirit says, hey, I know you've walked away. I know you've strayed toward that other path. But come on. We can do this. It's not over. Let's start fresh. And the Spirit walks with us as we go. Teaches us how to walk again. Helps us to remember the way back to the path. And again, as Jesus tells us, it's the only path that leads to life. It's God's kindness, the scriptures say, that lead us to repentance. Not his anger, it's his kindness that lead us to repentance. Because he knows what will ultimately bring us life, and so he invites us back and he walks with us by his Holy Spirit. And then, life can feel like living again. Life can feel truly alive again. The second thing that repentance does for us, first, it helps us start to restore our relationship with God, but it also restores our joy. Look at verse eight. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the the bones you've crushed rejoice. Look ahead to, to verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to, stay, to sustain me. I, I pray that prayer all the time. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. One of the reasons that we we feel joyless when we feel like we're not fully alive, when we're chasing after sin, it's because we're always looking over our shoulder. For David, he was literally looking over his shoulder. When God's presence was removed from David's life, God's protection was also removed from David's life. And he was now on the run from his own son who wanted him dead and he wanted his throne. And in the same way, when we're running away from God, we're always looking over our shoulder, right? Has ever heard this old, uh, this old kind of folk spiritual, sooner or later, God's going to cut you down? Johnny Cash did a version of it in 2003 and... Uh, you know, Johnny Cash is cooler than me, so I won't try to sing it. But, but uh, here's, how the, here's how the lyrics go in this. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. If you've got a deep voice, you can run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell him that God's going to cut him down. Now, that's an extreme way to say it. But when we run from God... We can't outrun him. And he's going to knock on our door and invite us back. But we have to accept that invitation or there are consequences, right? David is surrendering. He's surrendering to God. He's saying, I don't want to ignore, I don't want to hide, and I don't want to run away from you anymore. I want your presence, I want your forgiveness, and I want the joy that comes from knowing my sins are forgiven, the peace that comes from not having to run anymore. I don't have to look over my shoulder because now we're face to face. Now we can have it out. We can, we, can, we can deal with what needs to be dealt with. And I can have peace knowing that I'm in your presence once again. I can have joy. Until we deal with our sin, until we truly repent with the Lord, there'll be no joy. There'll be no celebration. 
There'll be no feeling truly alive. So let's say if you've been running from God for a long time and you're just tired, stop running, turn around. He's knocking on the door. He's not chasing after you because he hates you and he wants to punish you. He's chasing after you in his kindness because he wants to bring you back into his presence and he wants to restore to you the joy of salvation. The last thing it does, and you guys are like, yeah, you always bring it back to mission because we're a missional church and we're on Mission Boulevard. But repentance restores our mission. If you see what David is praying in this passage, verse 13, he says, then... Once you restore me, God, once you restore the joy of salvation and you give me a new spirit that can sustain me, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God and my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I love this. I love this because he's saying restore me and then I can join you in restoring others. And he talks about doing it humbly. Right? David is saying, I'm a sinner. Who am I to judge other sinners? I want them to see what you have done for me. I want you to see the restoration, the healing, the joy that comes from knowing you. So he doesn't do this in a sense of superiority, but one who has received great compassion and unfailing love. The joy of salvation spills out of my life and pours into others, and we want to tell them how they can experience the grace that we found in Jesus. That's what mission is all about. It's not, hey, we got the goods, we got the secret knowledge, and we're going to tell the rest of the world the secret knowledge because we're the right ones. It's not that. It's, oh my gosh, look at what God has done for me. Look at what he has done for me, the joy that comes from knowing him, and I just want everyone else to experience this too. This is one of the best parts of our Hume Hume cabin discussions with our, our junior high boys, at least. We talked a lot about this. It was easy to go, okay, well, is this person doing this? Are they, are they sinning if they're doing this? And, and the, the, the thing that we always said is like, well, here's what the scriptures say. Here's what's right and wrong. But also, here's Jesus' posture towards those people, towards us. It's always an invitation to come back, to experience the joy of salvation. And so as we are on mission together, like David, we're on mission saying, hey, I'm in the same boat as you, but let me tell you what I found. And David tells God, I'll give you all the credit and the glory. My lips will praise you. I will tell my story. The last couple of verses, I just want to read these again because they, 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 they deal with Israel's uh, history, but they're really interesting. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What David is saying is, if I come to church and I sing all the right words, and if I sit under some good teaching and I form all the right opinions about what's right and wrong, but I'm living in sin, then my worship is not, does not mean a thing. That's, that's harsh, like that's convicting to me because I come here every week and I wanna make sure that my heart is right with God. I don't wanna just sing songs that don't match up with my life because I'm out there living in a way that doesn't glorify God. And for the people of Israel, the, the sacrificial system was really important. This is how we deal with sin. And he's like, if you come and you make an offering 
And then you go home and just keep living the same sinful life you've been living. You keep treating people poorly. You keep living selfishly. It doesn't matter. Your sacrifice means nothing. And that's so convicting for me. It's so convicting for me that I don't want to come here and give lip service to God with my words and my songs and then go and live in a way that doesn't honor him at all. And so that's where, that's where David closes the thing. Repentance comes full circle. I'm not just apologizing. I'm not just trying to get out of the consequences. I want to be new. I want my life to honor you in such a way that when I sing the songs, it means something. That when I speak the words and when I tell my neighbors about the goodness of God, it means something. And it's in this, this, this purpose, this, this prospering of Zion, of Israel. God called Israel to be a light to the world. And that's kind of where David, David leads it. As we, as we kind of finish with this idea of mission, the, the mission of Israel was to be a light to the world, to show the world how good the one true God is. And as David failed God as, it, as Israel's king, he recognized, no, we need to turn things around. We need to honor God the way he intended us to. Walk step by step with him as a people for the rest of the world to see. David's story is a part of a larger narrative, right? Israel was called to be set apart. They were, they were meant to be different so that they could display the goodness of God. Israel, at a certain point in their history, clamored for a king. They didn't have a king, and they wanted a king. Why? Because they wanted to be just like the other nations around them. They wanted a powerful king who would fight for them like the other nations. And God took this personally. He understood that this was ultimately Israel rejecting him as king in order to have a worldly king. And he grieved over this. And we see from the beginning the kingdom was a mess. The first king, Saul, everything you would want a king to be, big, handsome, amazing warrior, did not pursue God. And it turned disastrous for Israel. David, the very best king Israel had, was a murderer, right? <laughs> he was the best one. And his whole life falls apart. By the end of his, his reign, the kingdom is split in two, and it's a full-on civil war. Solomon, and on and on, these kings live in folly. And occasionally, there's a good king who would reform and say, hey, we got to get back to honoring God. But that wouldn't last very long. I close with this to say this. Israel asked for a king. And God said, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it. And it led ultimately to Israel's destruction. But in the midst of that, God says, I have a king that's coming from David's line. Not like any of the other kings that came before. One of David's own children, essentially, one of his ancestors, his his, uh, not ancestors, what's the other one? Descendants. I lost the word. One of David's descendants will rule with goodness and justice. God comes in the person of Jesus to live the perfect life step by step that we were supposed to live in relationship with God. He went to the cross to die for our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice. And then God raised him from the dead, defeating sin and death once and for all. And now he sits on his throne, ruling as king. 
And one day, the scriptures tell us, a new heaven and a new earth will be created and they will collide and we will live in the perfect presence of God like we were supposed to, all under the rule of King Jesus. We wanted a king and we got the mess that was made because of it. But God is saying, I have a better king in store. And so where do we go from here? First, I would say use this psalm as a beginning point for repentance in your own life. To start to bridge the distance between you and God. To recognize that King Jesus has made a way for you to have perfect peace in the presence of God. When we sin, we push God away, but we can use this psalm as a way of repentance, of breaking down the wall we've built between us and God so that his presence can transform us, bring us joy, and set us back on the right path. And let me just say this, it doesn't happen alone. David wrote this psalm after his friend worked through it with him. We do this in community. This isn't just between you and God. We work through these things together. There's not one of us in here who's too good to repent. Every one of us needs to turn around at some point. Don't do it alone. But just like David, your story of God's grace in your life is not just for you. He wants to transform you so that your actions and your postures and your words are in line with him. He invites us into salvation and healing and into a right relationship through him, through repentance. But he asks us to carry that invitation around with us everywhere we go. He's invited us and he's given us an invitation to pass out to everyone else. You too can experience the mercy, the unfailing love, and the compassion of God. And that only comes with a posture towards others of humility. You know, David is looked at as a hero of the Bible. I've already mentioned that. He's supposed to foreshadow King Jesus for the people of Israel. And he was the best example of a godly king that we have in the Bible, and he was supremely messed up. And that says to me, even the best of us needs radical grace, unfailing love, and great compassion so that we can be transformed and have a restored relationship with God. So our posture towards others is to never look down on anyone else as if we've got it figured out. Instead, our posture towards others is, take my hand. We're in this together. We all need God's grace. We've all been on this path that leads to destruction at one point or another. Take my hand and let's walk back to that path that leads to God's presence and to true life. Let's do this together. So I'm gonna invite the band to come up and we're gonna just sing a few songs. And this first one is just an excellent one that reminds us that we can come we can come and be in God's presence. No matter what we've done, no matter how far we've run away, he welcomes us home. And as we do that, if you need to, to spend some time this morning repenting, praying to God, you can do that right where you sit. You can just say, God, I, I've run far away and, and like David did, I, I wanna come back. Or maybe you just want to celebrate because you know exactly what this psalm is about because you've experienced God's restoration. But for all of us, let's cry out to God. Let's remember his goodness and his grace and the fact that he invites us into his presence and into new life day after day. And he sends us forth with an invitation to tell anybody who will listen that they can have that life too. Let's pray. Jesus, we come here this morning and uh, we come from all different 
situations and scenarios. We come with joys and celebrations and we come with pain and we come with sorrows. We come from seasons of victory where we've been set free from the sin patterns in our life and some of us come entangled and feeling like we're still trapped. Lord, whatever it is we bring into this place today, let us leave here with freedom. Freedom from sin. Let us leave here with relationship restored, back toward a path of healing, back back toward a path that leads to life. And Lord, let us all leave here on mission, recognizing, God, that you have true life for us. And that's what the path that you have us on is all about because it leads to you and the life that you have God, make us, make us people of grace, people of mercy, people who welcome others so that they might experience what we've experienced. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.